Chapter 34 of Paul, A Herald of the Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gaynor Care. Paul, A Herald of the Cross by Florence M. Kingsley. Chapter 34, A Businessman of Ephesus. Claudius, Emperor of Rome, was dead. Poisoned so ran the evil whisper by his empress. There was no investigation of the suspicious circumstances which surrounded his death. The young Britannicus, his lawful heir with his sister Octavia, were, it is true, overwhelmed with grief and fear. But in the great palace, with its fifteen hundred courtiers and retainers, they were more desolate and helpless than the meanest slaves. It was known that Agrippina Augusta, sixth wife and niece of the emperor, had with her own fair hand taken a mushroom from the silver dish set before her at supper by Palatus, taster to his imperial highness, and with honeyed words of flattery had presented it to her husband. Agrippina was one of the daughters of Germanicus and therefore sister of Caius Caesar. She was recalled from banishment by Claudius, and became his wife after the death of the infamous Messalina. She was a woman of the most abandoned character. Shortly after eating it, the emperor was borne from the table in violent convulsions, which terminated his life within a few hours. Those in high places merely shrugged their shoulders. Locusta, the most skillful poisoner of her time, yet lived in a dungeon of the palace, too valuable an adjunct to imperial power to be lightly thrust out of life. It was not the part of discretion to look at things too closely. And why, after all, mourn for a man who had quitted the palace of the Caesars only to become a god? Agrippina herself officiated as priestess in the stately ceremonial of deification. And if the scarlet stola embroidered with pearls, which she wore, reminded the beholders somewhat unpleasantly of blood, they had only to raise their eyes to the beautiful haughty face above it, to be dazzled or awed into forgetfulness. More than all, Nero was emperor. Nero, young, gay, genial, beautiful, as one of the sculptured gods. There was no visible stain on the fair jeweled hands which had lifted him to the throne, and therefore two hundred millions of mankind lifted their eyes and adored. Adored Claudius dead, no matter how, and enthroned amid the stately shades of Caesars long since departed adored Agrippina Augusta, the magnificent imperial empress mother, adored Nero, her son, emperor of Rome, and master of their future lives and happiness. Reports of these ominous happenings reached the provinces in due time. Another emperor on the throne. This meant perhaps new governors, new legions, new taxations, new laws, better possibly or worse, the people listened with commendable patience to the reading of the imperial proclamation, raised a mighty shout in token of their loyal allegiance, then went about their business resignedly. Claudius was dead, Nero reigned, but bread must be eaten today and tomorrow, and bread was not easy to get. In the shop of Demetrius, chief silversmith of Ephesus, work was going on briskly as usual. Demetrius himself, an undersized, yellow, grim-looking man of uncertain age, was in a bad temper, also as usual. His eye travelled impatiently about the dark, crowded room, where a score or more of workmen sat bending over their tasks. "'Let the knaves look to their polishing more carefully than they have done of late,' he growled, turning to the overseer, who stood at his side. "'And look you, there is no need to make the next lot quite so heavy. Our pilgrims do not buy the image of the sacred Diana for the amount of silver that is in it. 
the gods be praised. He picked up one of the finished pieces as he spoke and examined it carefully. It was a small but exact copy of the world-famous shrine and image of the Ephesian Diana, the original of which, shrouded from vulgar gaze, stood in the dark and awful adetum of the great temple, an image fashioned from some unknown substance by the fingers of the great father of the gods himself, and dropped down from unimaginable realms to the children of men for their comfort and healing. So at least ran the story of its origin, which had been implicitly believed for ages. The silver model at which Demetrius was looking represented a hideous misshapen figure, swathed like a mummy and covered from head to foot with protuberances representing, it was thought, the all-bounteous breasts of nature. Upon the inverted pyramid which formed a base for the shapeless feet were inscribed certain words of mysterious import, the very words, Demetrius was wont to assure his patrons, which rendered the sacred original of such wonderful efficacy for every human ill. Ascian, Cataskian, Lex, Tetris, Damnameus, Asia, he muttered to himself, his surly brow clearing. The obtaining of these mystic words had turned out to be a wonderful piece of good luck, he reflected, superstitious awe and greed mingling on pretty even terms in his mind. It was a great sum, assuredly, which the rapacious priests yonder had forced him to pay for them, but well expended, as subsequent events had proven. At the forthcoming festival of the goddess, he would sell hundreds, nay, thousands, of these shrines. He was already a rich man. He would speedily be richer. Who knows, he muttered, as he laid the image down. I may be Asiarch yet. Ten Asiarchs were chosen annually from among the wealthiest citizens of the chief cities of Asia. These presided over the great yearly festival held in Ephesus in honor of the goddess Diana, and upon them devolved the vast expenses of the occasion. But in return, their names were recorded on coins and in public inscriptions. They were robed in purple and crowned with garlands, and were henceforth regarded as persons of the highest distinction and honor. After finishing the inspection of his shops, the worthy silversmith betook himself to the examination of his accounts, an occupation which proved on this occasion to be even more satisfactory. Profits were good, silver was plenty, labor was cheap. More than that, the worship of Diana was steadily increasing year by year, and he, Demetrius the silversmith, had helped to bring this about. He could see no limit to the dazzling possibilities of his pious industry. The more shrines he sold, the more pilgrims would flock to Ephesus the following year. Attracted by the fame of the original heaven-wrought image, an image which Demetrius privately thought to be a very poor production compared with his own brand-new manufacture. Every worshipper would carry away some token of his pilgrimage, and what more desirable than one of these beautiful silver shrines, with the image of the goddess and the sacred words all complete. I shall certainly be an Asiarch, repeated Demetrius triumphantly, and when that happens, let who will rule Rome. He bestowed the parchments in his strong box, and putting on his conical cap, strolled out into the agora. The place was humming like a hive of bees, the shouts of the hucksters at their stalls, the shrill cries of itinerant vendors, and the fitful blowing of flutes which announced the presence of some beardless priest of Diana, mingled confusedly with the clack of countless tongues. Demetrius surveyed the scene loftily, as if he already wore the purple robe and laurel wreath of an Asiarch. And what say you, my good Demetrius, to the news from Rome? exclaimed a voice at his side. The silversmith turned and surveyed the speaker. 
my good Demetrius indeed, he thought. And from a beggarly knave like Trophimus, aloud he said coldly, The news from Rome does not concern me. The man who had accosted him laid one finger at the side of his nose. Oh ho, my lord Demetrius, so the wind sits in the wrong quarter today. Well then, since the news from Rome does not concern thee, I know something that does. In the school of Tyrannus, yonder, a learned traveler from Jerusalem is proclaiming the new and terrible God who will shortly destroy the temple of Diana with all that worship her. How many silver shrines think you will be sold when that shall come to pass? From Jerusalem, exclaimed Demetrius scornfully. What care I for the witless ravings of a filthy Jew? I have heard of the man Sceva and his tribe before. This man's name is Paulus, said Trophimus, dropping his voice. By the heaven-born Artemis, I am myself more than half convinced of the truth of what he says. Demetrius looked after him as he walked away. Blockhead, he muttered contemptuously. On the opposite side of the square stood a long, low building with pillared front. It was called the School of Tyrannus, after the famous Ephesian of that name who had once instructed a multitude of devout pupils within its walls. Of late it had been leased for longer or shorter periods to diverse itinerant philosophers, astrologers, and wonder-workers, who, brimming over with real or imaginary learning, had there harangued the gaping loafers of the Agora. Fool! repeated Demetrius irritably. Destroy the temple of Diana, indeed. He lifted his eyes to the gleaming walls of the great building, which was the crowning glory of Ephesus the Magnificent, and one of the wonders of the habitable world, four times as great as the Athenian Parthenon, its peristyle consisting of 120 ionic pillars hewn from Parian marble, its roof of cedar supported by columns of jasper, its walls enriched by priceless statues and paintings by Paraxicles, Parhaeus, and Epiles, with its sacred shrine behind the awful curtain where dwelt the heaven-wrought image, and its inestimable treasures of gold, of silver, of precious stones. Demetrius laughed aloud and rubbed his hands. There is nothing in heaven above or in the earth beneath that can shake the power of the eternal Diana, he muttered. And praise be to the gods, my fortunes are linked with hers. Nevertheless, he turned his steps in the direction of the school of Tyrannus. I will see for myself, he said, what this thing may be. There was a great crowd about the door of the place. Demetrius found himself unable to get in, but he could hear the tones of a man's voice rising and falling as if in passionate exhortation. It was interrupted suddenly by a loud, joyful cry, followed by a prolonged murmur of excitement from the multitude. For the love of the goddess, let me pass, cried a ragged, misshapen woman, wringing her lean hands piteously. He has healed another. Nay, I must get in. Demetrius had succeeded in forcing his way somewhat nearer the door by this time. He had made up his mind to see what was going on inside. For the love of the Christ, let me pass, that I also may be healed, repeated the beggar woman. In her desperation, she pushed violently against the person of the wealthy silversmith. Dog! he cried, striking her full in the face with his clenched fist. The woman fell back with a low moan, blood streaming from her mouth. The crowd burst into a loud, jeering laugh. Ha, good silversmith, I see that thou hast curiosity as well as another. Demetrius turned and doffed his cap with respect. The man who had spoken was Plotius, the owner of rich silver mines, and thus connected with the craft of which Demetrius was master. Thou art a shrewd fellow, Demetrius, a shrewd fellow, said the other with a laugh. But take my word for it, there is no need. I have been within for a full hour and have heard all that I can stomach. 
The fellow is a Jew, and Diana alone knoweth what besides. An exorcist, magic monger, proclaimer of a crucified malefactor, one Christus, who also arose from the dead. A mule teaching flies, I say. Come, a word with you on business. Thus reassured by so wise a man as the wealthy Plautius, Demetrius straightway forgot about the whole matter. The time of the great yearly festival was moreover now close at hand. Pilgrims were beginning to flock into the city from every part of Asia. The fortunate citizens who had been chosen to personate the gods of the great pageant were already looked upon with that species of mock adoration which would be their portion for the month during which the aphasia was in progress. The theater and stadium were crowded daily with festive throngs to witness the musical and oratorical contests, the chariot races, athletic exhibitions, gladiatorial battles, and the yet more terrible combats between men and wild beasts. While the city resounded day and night with the loud shrilling of flutes and jangling of timbrels from the gorgeous processions and spectacles which were constantly sweeping to the great temple of Diana, while lust and murder stalked through the streets unveiled, while the herd of bloated and beardless priests with their attendant priestesses shamed the light of the sun with their nameless abominations, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the glad tidings of God, beheld in this sickening spectacle of debased humanity only a great door and effectual which opened unto him, toiling late into the night at his humble trade of tent-making, that he might support not only himself but those who were with him. By day he proclaimed the glad tidings in the school of Tyrannus, in the streets and marketplaces and from house to house, spit upon, reviled, greeted everywhere with hissings and maledictions, tortured by bodily sufferings, faint with hunger, parched with thirst, ragged and footsore, made as it were the filth and offscoring of the world, pilloried on infamy's high stage, a spectacle to men and angels. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. During these years, Demetrius had grown steadily richer. He no longer wore the conical cap of a master smith, but affects the rich and sober garb of a wealthy citizen of leisure. He still visits his workshops daily, and looks to the weight and finish of his silver images as carefully as ever. It is whispered that he is possessed of more treasure in the mysterious and inviolable stronghold behind the veiled shrine of Diana than even Plautius, who was Asiarch last year. As he stands in the door of his workshop, occasionally acknowledging with a haughty wave of the hand the salutation of a passing acquaintance, it may be seen that he has grown stouter and sleeker than of old. Demetrius, with his protuberant paunch and his sour, ugly little face, Plautius had once observed behind his back, resembles nothing so much as one of his own images. And this irreverent speech had been whispered about with huge enjoyment amongst his fellow craftsmen. On this pleasant spring morning, the sour, ugly little face of the rich silversmith was sourer and uglier than ever. He was looking at the crowd which had been gathering for the last hour in the market square in front of the school of Tyrannus. Now and again he muttered something unintelligible under his breath. Suddenly, a great shout broke forth from a thousand throats, as a dense cloud of smoke, pierced here and there, with darting tongues of flame, rolled heavily upward. Fools, cried Demetrius aloud, grinding his teeth. Unspeakable asses, they will be burning my shop over my head next. Aye, and so they will, friend Demetrius, 
said a solemn voice at his side. Repent and believe, brother, repent and believe, else not only thy house but thine own wretched body shall be burned with unquenchable fire. Demetrius spat venomously before him, his yellow countenance streaked and livid with rage. And since when, he spluttered, has Trophimus taken up the trade of the beggar Jew? I saw the wretch yesterday, ragged, barefooted, sore-eyed, hooted by a crowd of gamins in the agora. Nevertheless, he hath prevailed, and that gloriously, over the powers of darkness which be at Ephesus, answered Trophimus steadily. This burning of profane and wicked books which thou seest is but the token of that greater triumph over evil which shall speedily come to pass. Know ye not that the day of the living God is at hand? That in token thereof the sick are raised up, the blind see, the lame walk, and they that mourn rejoice in hope? Come, therefore, fetch forth thine idols, and cast them also into the flames. And of the ill-gotten gains which thou hast heaped up to thyself, give to the necessities of the poor. So shalt thou be saved from thy sins, and the blessing of the Lord shall rest upon thee and upon thy house. Demetrius laughed aloud. Ay, there's the point. Give of thy gold to the necessities of the poor. How much will serve thee, my friend Trophimus? And how much would the false Jew thy master require? Name the sum. I do. Trophimus turned away. The Lord have mercy upon thee, neighbor, he said sadly, and bring thee to a knowledge of the truth that is in Christ Jesus. With a sudden violent gesture, Demetrius plucked the jewel pointer from his girdle and hurled it after the departing figure of the man whom he had once called friend. The weapon fell short and clattered noisily upon the pavement. The curses of Diana, the curses of Diana light upon thee, he shrieked. Ascian, Cataskian, Lex, Tetris, Demnemeus, but Trophimus went steadily on his way, and never so much as turned his head. End of chapter 34 Recording by Gaynor Care